This morning's scripture reading is from the book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. It's found on page 342 of the Pew Bible, there in front of you or behind you. Again, 1 Chronicles 11, 1 through 3. For those who are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Then all Israel gathered together to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, even with Saul was king, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord your God said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over my people Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to, came to the king at Hebron, And David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel, according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. All right. Good morning again. Hey, my name is Ricky. I'm one of the pastors here. So grateful to be in front of you this morning as we dive into this passage. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Um, Father, you work for those who love you. That's just been in my mind ever since we were singing it just a moment ago, that you are a way maker. You work for those who would humble themselves before you in need. I just, this, this passage is just, uh, you're making a way in the midst of devastation in the midst of things falling apart. You have plans hidden in your heart for those who love you and would entrust themselves to you. Plans you haven't told us, but are for our good and for our building up. So God, we, we want to humbly submit ourselves to you this morning. We, we want to be the kinds of people that come to you in need with open hands and would receive that, um, without, um, um, like without an air about us, without, uh, without uh, an assumption of you. We, we know, like we have tasted and we've seen this passage declares of your grace. So God, we, we want to receive. And God, we want you to do among us something far greater than what we could imagine up ourselves or that we could work for ourselves. God, would you meet each one of us in the room as we come into this room, uh, perhaps with um, questions, perhaps we come to you with um, heavy hearts and with burdens. God, I pray that you would encourage us. I pray that you would reorient us and I pray that you would reunify our church family uh, as we're moving forward through First Chronicles. God, I pray that in your name. Amen. Okay, so we're continuing in the book of First Chronicles. Hey, Chronicles is this book that is this spiritual and historical DNA of the people of Israel at a time that was uh, incredibly critical for them. Critical in terms of their survival and critical in terms of their obedience to God. And these books were written down and delivered to this nation uh, uh, whose people had mostly been deported to a distant land for 70 years. This is what's known as the uh, Babylonian exile. 
And there they worked as slaves. They were children, like they, they worked there, they had children there, they died there um, under this oppressive rule. And their ch- children are back in the land of Israel. And they're trying to reestablish who they are as a nation. They're asking kind of sort of long lines of the questions that we're asking as a church. Who are we? What are we going to be pursuing? How will we be unified together? And they're in this state of rebuilding. But like most things, the time uh, of rebuilding has gone slower than they imagined. It's harder than they imagined. It's much more difficult than they had imagined. It's been many decades now, and after returning, things are still not how they ought to be. The temple of God is functional, but it's not complete, and they're becoming complacent. And they're actually drifting from the call of God on their lives. And the whole point is to encourage them to, again, reestablish a pursuit of the Lord that puts him at the center of who they are, in the center of their efforts. Similarly, we desire to place the Lord at the center of our church's purpose. And as a church, we're in the midst of this rebuilding. We're in this season of identifying who God has called us to be as a church family, and what it means for us to rebuild the foundations of our church. And we're asking God to give us a common vision of what that would look like among us. You heard me talk about foundations. Those are some of our efforts in that direction. We're desiring for God to unify our entire church around faithfully pursuing him as a community. What would that mean? What would that look like? And it can be tempting for us to get distracted on other kinds of priorities and programs, right? That seem to be a whole lot more practical. In fact, if we're like, our, our eyes can easily drift to things that seem more important, more immediate, especially since worship can be a divisive topic. But scripture insists that we keep worship at the center, even if it means that we have to work to get on the same page for how we're going to be pursuing this together as a church family. So the chronicler wants to encourage them to continue building God's house. And what stories does he tell to encourage them? Um, What picture does he want to put in front of them? He tells them the stories concerning King David. Last week, we saw the disobedience of King Saul and how God actually put Saul to death for not trusting him. Saul failed in his leadership of Israel, didn't trust the Lord. So the Lord um, put him to death. And now the chronicler turns to the rise of King David. In fact, the rest of First Chronicles will be the telling of the kingship of David. David is the king God chose to deliver his people and establish right worship in his nation. Thus, the kingship is foundational to the chronicler's vision of a unified people living in the land centered on the worship of God. As a heads up, yeah, we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at how David rightfully places worship at the center of their pursuits. And so in our passage today, um, what we're going to be doing is a little bit of a backstory. And in some sense, this sermon is going to be a setup or an overview of what we're going to be doing for the rest of Chronicles. We need to know about this David guy. We need to know some of his backstory, what got him to this point where he's being anointed here. Like, what did God, how did God call him? What did God do with him? He kind of shows up out of nowhere here. Who is this guy, David? And then what is the point of his anointing? What's the goal? What's the aim? Why does God have David? anointed. So that's what we're going to be doing some overview on. We're going to do that through three points. We're going to look at God's anointing, God's testing, and God's promise. Those are the three uh, points that we'll go through. God's anointing, God's testing, and God's promise. So let's begin by looking at God's anointing. And we're going to actually begin in verse three. Would you join me as I read that again? 
It says that they anointed King David over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. They didn't just anoint a random guy here. They didn't just anoint David because he seemed like the next best option. They anointed him because it was the word of the Lord to Samuel. Now, I don't know if you're the first or second or third or last born child in your family, but it seems like the last born children have a few things in common. They're a little bit spoiled. Um, Did I step on any toes already? Okay, well, they're a little bit spoiled. Um, They're generally a little uninformed, right? Like they're just kind of like following the pack. Um, They're usually uh, like little is expected of them. They usually don't show a ton of leadership potential because they don't have anyone smaller than them to like practice their chops on, Um, right? Uh, and, And there isn't like... Uh, another thing is they, they, they uh, usually get stuck doing all the things that the rest of the kids don't want to do, right? When they're like handing out marching orders of cleaning the house, they get stuck with cleaning the toilet or stuff like that. And David's no different here. David is that guy. He's the youngest in his family. David is stuck doing the things no one else wants to do. While his seven other brothers are near the house uh, doing all the important things with dad, you know, doing it shoulder to shoulder with their dad, David is off taking the family's small flock to graze in the mountainside. And he would be gone for days and even weeks on end doing this grueling work of uh, shepherding these flocks that belonged to the family. He would be off for days and days. And he always carried two things with him, a sling and a guitar-like instrument with him. Most of the time it was this lonely kind of job that, um, that would just go on for days and days, pretty bored. And so oftentimes he would take out his sling, pick up rocks and pebbles and sling them at nearby trees for target practice. Just days on days of throwing rocks and with a sling. Occasionally every now and then, maybe an animal might attack the sheep. Maybe a bear would come and attack and he would spring into action and courageously fend off and save the flock by slinging a rock to kill the animal. But most of the time it was lonely and he filled his time with singing to God. He would sing out to God among the sheep. And it's here that David in silence and solitude actually cultivated a heart that loved to be with God. Like imagine the days on end, no one's there to listen to him. No one's around and he's just singing passionately to his God. Think about the nights under the stars and David would hone his craft of singing to God, bearing his heart out to God. Now this, this Psalm may not have been written on the Hills, but certainly you can imagine David singing Psalm 27 for one thing I have asked to the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon his beauty the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Verse eight, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek? And he's just sings these to his Lord alone until one day his brothers come running after him. It's kind of a rare sight. One of his brothers is makes it over the hilltop and he's running to him and he informs him that he needs to go home as fast as he can, as fast as they can run home. He needs to head home because there's an old man asking for David. What, why would somebody, no one has ever asked for David in his life. And there's an old man asking for David and get this. It's a prophet. 
the prophet of God asking for David to come back home. And he walks into his father's house and there all of his brothers are lined up and the older man is standing there. He has long gray beard and he asks him to kneel down before him. And he begins to pour oil over David's head. And then he announces something in front of the entire family. And he says, behold, this is the Lord's anointed. Little did he know he had a con- that God had a conversation with Samuel just a few days earlier. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on Saul's appearance or at the height of his stature. You see, Saul was something to look at. He was a head taller than every other man. He was a kingly kind of man. He had broad shoulders. He had uh, muscles. He carried himself in a certain kingly manner, right? He was the kind of guy that you would establish as king. And the Lord says he rejected him. He says, I have rejected Saul for his disobedience. And he goes on, for the Lord sees not as man sees. You see, we look at the outward appearance of someone. We look at their outward appearance and we make, uh, we, we draw conclusions of what that could mean about their leadership. And he says, the Lord looks, or man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God said to Samuel, David has a heart like mine. Anoint him as king. Behold the Lord's anointed. Like any young Israelite boy, he knew what that meant. Like when that happened, he wasn't asking questions of what that meant. He knew the gravity of this situation. He knew what that meant. So other questions probably flooded his mind. Like, why? Like, who am I? I'm the youngest of my brothers. I have no leadership potential. Why me? And then maybe another question. What now? Like, what happens now? Like, what do I do with this now? After the anointing, Samuel leaves and David went back out to the sheep. Right? He, he went right back to doing what he was doing. The secret anointing didn't seem to change much. David went back to his sheep and it didn't seem to change much, but it actually changed everything. It changed everything about David's life. It began him on a pathway of testing, which is our next point. God's testing. You see, shortly after David, again, being the youngest and given all the, like the crap jobs, he, he's actually given another crap job. He actually has to deliver food to his brothers who are now on the front lines fighting the Philistines, right? He's given this job of delivering food to them and faces Goliath, right? He faces this giant. He actually kills Goliath and he begins to climb the ladder of fame and praise in the eyes of all the people. He's welcomed into the palace by Saul. Could you imagine as a shepherd boy, poor family, getting all this fame instantly and being welcomed into the palace by Saul? He is leading armies. He's having successes. He's have, he, people are writing songs about him. They're saying things like uh, Saul's kill, killed his thousands and David has killed his tens of thousands. They're writing songs about him. They're going viral. He's a war hero. He's been anointed by God and everything seems to getting to be getting better. He's going up and to the right. He's getting promoted. He's getting praised. He's being loved. Saul gives him his daughter in marriage. All of his life just seems like everything he's touching is going gold, right? But then he's attacked by Saul. Saul attacks him and he becomes banished from the kingdom. A price is on his head. 
He has armies looking for him. He's on the run for his life in the desert. He's in danger and he's escaping death at every turn. The songs that we're singing praises about who he is are now replaced with gossip, slander, with scandal and rumors being told about him. He can't go anywhere without anyone looking at him sideways, wondering if that might be David. Because they, they know about David. They know the scandal that he did. He used to lead an army. Now he's leading this ragtag group of bitter men. He's fighting battles to stay alive. And in addition to all of this, there's the waiting. There's this just waiting for what God promised him, right? This, this season in David's life was 15 years, 15 years of being anointed before he actually becomes king of Israel. But it's actually longer than that. In our passage today, it seems that David um, unifies the entire kingdom right after Saul dies. But we learn in 2 Samuel that David had to wait even further than that. Immediately after Saul's death, the tribe of Judah anointed David as their king, but it took some time for all the other tribes to come up on board. Um, Saul's son, Ishbosheth, that's a pretty good effort for it, the, the only one of Saul's sons who had not perished in the battle of Gilboa became a pretender to the throne, even though God had dismissed the entire house of Saul. And you can see that in 2 Samuel 1-4. through But he wound up reigning over a collection of the tribes until he himself was killed. Then the tribes were unified under David. So this took an additional seven years of David's life. So 22, 25 years of David waiting for this fulfillment. Between his anointing of Samuel until the day he would be anointed here in our passage that we see today. Hearing this story as a child, I always wondered like, why was David anointed, uh, like, why, why the gap between his anointing and him actually becoming king? It seems like, like he should just be king after he was anointed. Like, that, that didn't make any sense to me. Why, why was he anointed so many years before he actually became king? 25 years seemed like a waste. Like, he's running around doing all these things. It seems like a complete waste. What's the purpose of Saul remaining king? Why wasn't David instantly uh, placed as king? Why the wait? Why the delay? Why doesn't God deliver on his purpose for David faster? Do you ever ask yourself that question personally? God, why the delay? I thought you called me to this. I thought this was supposed to happen. I thought I had a clear vision of how my life was supposed to dot, dot, dot. God, why the delay? Last week, how was it that Saul responded to the waiting and the trusting of the Lord? He took matters into his own hands and he disobeyed God, right? How will David respond to his, this kind of opposition? That's the question we should be asking. How is this king going to be different? To all the waiting on the Lord, he, to all like his name being dragged through the mud, Uh, From the call of God, from the anointing, from all the greatness that he experienced, it seems like a hopeless dream to David now. Like it almost seems like a, a dream that he had. How on earth would this materialize? How would this all come together? Will David trust God even in the midst of difficulty? Now, what did God tell David or Samuel? What did God tell Samuel? He said, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord... He looks in at the heart. 
God's concern here is the heart of this king. Why the difficulty, God? Why the 25-year delay? Why was Saul left in place to torture and test David for so many years? Why the struggle? Why the running? There was no delay. There was not a delay. God went to work. God went to work for David, testing him and refining him immediately. From a shepherd boy whose heart loved to sing praises to his God to turn him into a king who would restore the nation to right-ordered worship for God. Imagine the failure if David would have been, like, wouldn't have been humbled. Imagine the crash that would have happened in David's life if he wouldn't have been shaped by God. Imagine what would have happened if he'd have risen to king without the years of being shaped. The sheep herder would have grown up to become a king for sure and quite possibly and most definitely King Saul number two, right? He would have become that same thing in order to get rid of all of his pride and his arrogance and to put in him a heart that truly did trust God and depend on God and rested on God in the midst of testing and refinement. It lasted 25 years to get David where God wanted him to be. And this pattern is found all throughout scripture. An an obvious example here would be Joseph. How many years was it between Joseph's dreams And when his brothers bowed down before him, right? He had these dreams of his brothers bowing down before him. How many years between that and him actually reigning over Egypt and rescuing God's people? What was going on between those years? Psalm 105, 19 says, until what had come to pass, the word of the Lord tested Joseph. God will call us towards something he has for us by his grace And will let us enter a season of testing and waiting and refining in order to prepare our hearts to be obedient to his call. I believe God still does that today. I believe that is one of the ways that God works for our good. When God taps your shoulder for a calling, you will often undergo a season of testing and refinement. And and typically, the greater the call, the greater the test. God uses these tests to prove our character. He already knows that we like, aren't ready to handle the fulfillment. So he tests us in order to reveal what's in our hearts so that we would cling to him more. So that we would be more humble, more dependent, not haughty, not full of ourselves. So that we would get to the bottom of ourselves to truly see where the grace of God is meeting our life. So we would truly see how he works and what it requires for us to trust him in those places. Oftentimes, he has to take us to the bottom of who we are, right? When Saul threw the spear at David, it was a test. How did he respond? David walked away. When the gossip and the slander was being said about him, how did he respond? He was silent. He didn't get on Twitter and like fight back all the comments. When he was kicked out of the nation, how did he respond? He endured. He went and lived in a cave. When he had a chance to kill Saul, Multiple times, how did he respond? He trusted God to fight battles for him. He didn't take matters into his own hands. Now David was far from perfect, right? 
I mean, he is, after all, just a man. He was far from perfect. In fact, if you go back and read the stories, David also lied and manipulated and worked some systems for him so that he could short-tell some of those things. But when faced with his sin, when confronted with his sin, he quickly ran in repentance and again put himself before God and said, I've sinned before you alone. I have failed. I want to trust and obey you even more. So God was refining him even in those places. And God often prepares situations in order to test our trusting and obeying of him in order to grow us into the kinds of people who will steward his call with obedience. And the rise of King David in this picture is a picture of God's sovereignty, that he, he gets us where he wants us. He brings life out of disaster. He did this in David's life. Um, he did this through Saul's death. The death of Saul is seen as this disaster for Israel. Their king has died. He's killed himself. It's this huge disaster for Israel, and it serves as an illustration of the kinds of consequences of failing to obey God diligently with our lives. But it's not the end. Like, that's not this story. Actually, it begins there because it wants to highlight God's faithfulness on the other end of that story of the anointing of David. He's now installing a king who he has been working on, that he's been refining, that he's been shaping, and he's reminding us that he has plans. There is hope. Who will lead them forward to the things of God? This was the message of hope to the chronicler's uh, original audience as they emerged from the, the curses of the exile. And this should be an encouragement for us. This should be a huge encouragement for our church family and for our own souls as we emerge out of the last few years that God is on, that is working for us. He um, fights for those who um, would, would submit themselves to him, that would trust him, that would go before him in humility and long for him to be the one that fights battles, to long for him to be the one that takes care of us and grows us. So the question then is, where, what is he preparing them for? Like, what's the goal of this? Let's go to God's promise here. So the chronicler is writing to a people who need renewed hope for the work that God is calling them toward and what it would look like for them practically to move forward in the kind of work that God has for them. Now, there's few better pictures for this than King David. There's few better pictures or illustrations or ways that he could picture this for them than taking David and taking this divided kingdom that has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of going after false idols and idol worship and debauchery and taking this people and uniting them around the worship of God as the center of their identity. What an amazing, almost like impossible reality that God does here through David. But I also wonder why God relented to his people in giving them a king in the first place. Like, have you ever asked yourself that question? I used to ask that question all the time when I was little. It's like, why did he relent to give them a king? They asked for a king. We want to be like every other nation that we're around. Give us a king. And God goes, I'm your king. You don't need a king. Kings come with liabilities. I'm your king. But they begged for a king. They wanted a king. They wanted a king like all the other nations, and God gave them one like the other nations. He was tall. He was handsome. He was strong and flawed and broken and sinful. Saul. But it isn't, but isn't it interesting here 
Here we are. We saw last week, Saul dies. The king thing failed. The dynasty failed. Why doesn't God step in here and go, you see, that's what we get. You set us back this many years. All right, can we get back on track with my original plan? I'm your king. Why doesn't God do that? They don't even ask for a second king. Why, why doesn't he do that here? He gives them David instead. They don't even out, like want a king. They're not asking for a king. But he sets up at the center of Israel's history, this dynasty of King David. At the center of Israel's like identity, this King David, this dynasty. In fact, the kingdom established by David is understood to be like this pinnacle of Israel's existence. This pinnacle, even, I'll go beyond that, this pinnacle for God's creation. He puts and establishes a kingdom that was at the pinnacle of his plan for creation. And there's a glaring tip-off to this reality in verse 1 of our passage. All of Israel is gathered together. They're unified. You have the officers, you have the army, you have the priests, you have the leaders of all 12 tribes. And what do they say to King David? Put your eyes on verse 1. Look at verse 1. They say, behold, we are your bone and flesh. Man, what does that bring memories of? Man, doesn't that just spark your thoughts of like, wait, that's what... Adam said to Eve, like that takes us all the way, all the way back to the creation narrative. Didn't Adam say that to his wife in the opening verses of creation? Adam tells Eve, his wife, you are bone of my bone and you are flesh of my flesh. And David's kingly coronation then is like a marriage ceremony. Uniting David as this bridegroom to Israel, the bride. They are saying, we belong to you. We need you. Just as Eve was given to Adam as his helper to accomplish what God had called him toward. Now, side note here, helper here um, doesn't mean like sidekick or like, um, like a gopher. Helper here means, it's this word, uh, this Hebrew word like ezer. And it's used all over the place in the Psalms to talk about God. God is our helper. What is it, what is it getting at? It's saying we need, like he supplies the kind of help that we need. We can't do it without him. God supplies Adam this helper. Israel is supplied this kind of helper. They need David. They need him. He offers the kind of help that they need. Israel needed someone with a heart aligned with God's own heart. They needed the kind of leader that would lead them toward the kind of flourishing and kind of um, direction that God himself wants to lead them. And it's implied in the two identities that they declare to David. He is a helper being their shepherd and their prince. Do you see that in verse 2? All the tribes say that David is their bone, uh, that they are his bone and flesh. And then they say in verse 2, And the Lord your God said to you, you shall be a shepherd of my people, Israel, and you shall be a prince over my people, Israel. They're saying this to David. No other king is called a shepherd in scripture. No other king is called a shepherd other than David. He was this shepherd boy for sure. So maybe they're talking about that, but I think it's way bigger than that, right? Now he's called the shepherd of God's people. Shepherds 
care for the flock, they tend the flock, they uh, protect the flock, all those sorts of things. But get the idea of like warm fuzzies out of your mind when you think of a shepherd. Like I know you have like those uh, pastel painting pictures of like a shepherd holding a, a little lamb and stuff in your mind. Yeah, yeah, they did, they did that. But their primary role, being a shepherd, is leading the flock. The primary role of a shepherd is to direct the flock, to direct them where they ought to go. They did it with a staff. They did it with a rod. They did it to get the sheep where they needed to be so that they would flourish, so they would come into green pastures and thrive and grow and grow strong. They're saying that David is called to lead and guide them to the green pastures that God has for them. And we're going to see in the coming weeks how David leads them to that end. But he's also called a prince. Now, wait a second. I thought he was anointed as king. Like, he's anointed, he waited 25 years to be anointed as the prince. Like, you would think that he would kind of get, like, annoyed at that. No, 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 I'm the king. Right? You'll see in your Bible, this is actually a quote. This is all of Israel repeating the words that God said in Ezekiel 34, 22. Let me read this to you. I will rescue my flock. This is God speaking. They shall no longer be prey. I will judge between sheep and sheep and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. I will be their God. And my servant David shall be a prince among them. I am the Lord and I've spoken. God is establishing David's kingship for sure. But it's going to be like an under-shepherdly, princely rule. It's going to be this under-shepherding because the Lord himself will be their God. Only God himself can see what he promises them in Ezekiel. He can only tend to what he promises them later in Ezekiel. Read with me uh, Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-three. Just a little bit below that passage, Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-three. God says, They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things. This is what sent them into the exile. This is why they got judged doing all of these things. Or any of their transgressions, their sins before God sent them into exile. God says, we have to deal with this. But I will save them from their backslidings in which they have sinned. And I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be a king over them. And they shall have one shepherd, and they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. How is he going to do that? What is that going to look like? The Lord himself will establish the kingdom of David to train them to pursue the Lord with all of their heart in right-ordered worship, except there's a hitch. There's a problem. The backsliding, the sin, the transgressions against God that will inevitably continue, right? So the Lord says, I will save them from their backsliding myself. I will be their one shepherd. I will be the one who actually cleanses them. He will rebuild the house of the Lord and David's dynasty will be established. But there's a hint here that he's a prince in it because it will not be like any other kingdom. So this is where we're going with the rest of Chronicles. And we're going to, I'm going to tip our hand here. Go to Chronicles 17, 12. 
First Chronicles seventeen twelve. He says, he shall build a house for me. He's talking about David. And I will establish his throne forever. It won't be like Saul's. His kingdom won't end when he dies. Verse 14, I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. See, his, his kingdom won't end like Saul's where his whole household had to die and that king, that dynasty ended. David's will continue. But David can't establish this sort of kingdom. He, he himself is a sinner and he dies. He can't cleanse them as a king. And it can't be done through his son Solomon, right? Goodness gracious, Solomon. He's full of sin. He's wise, but man, he is full of sin. He marries all these women, these foreign women. He builds temples to them. He worships other gods. The chronicler's audience coming back from exile, this is their history. They know the story. They're coming back from exile. They know personally the fallout of bad leadership. How the failures of Saul and David and Solomon and other kings brought about national ruin and judgment for them. This is why the chronicler reminds them of the one thing that, can, that they can know for sure. God has promised that the throne of David would be established forever. Their calling to build a house to the Lord and make his worship at the center of their ambitions would be like, wouldn't be something that would, um, that would put them to shame. It would be building a house that would last forever. It would be building the house of the Lord that would endure forever. How will he do this? How does the Lord Almighty, the one shepherd, the good shepherd, the true king of Israel do this? When the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary in Luke 1, he says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will give Jesus the throne of his father David as part of his lineage. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom there will be no end. Therefore, beyond any shadow of a doubt, the Bible teaches us that the promise to David that his descendant would rule forever is fulfilled in Jesus. This means that when God said to David in Chronicles 17, he shall build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. He had in view a house in a kingdom much, much greater than Israel, much, much broader than Israel. God's revealed purpose to David is a promise to establish a righteous ruler in Israel forever, but also to put that ruler over the church, over our church, and then over the world. Isaiah says, of his increase of his government and peace, there will be no end, and it'll be worldwide. And the angel says in Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And David began, what David began 
what the writer is encouraging his listeners toward. And the invitation before us is that he is the king of kings and lord of lords and has saved us to bring us into his kingdom forever. Jesus has come as this true shepherd of his people, the only one worthy of our worship and praise forever. And his kingdom has not finished expanding. And there's our call. Like, that, that's the call. Again, this call to put worship of the one that's only worthy of worship at the center of our pursuit. When God has completed all of these purposes, then the house of David will actually be planet Earth. Like, this house will expand to the far reaches of the earth. And the subjects of the king will not just be Jews, but people from every tongue and tribe and nation we see in Revelation 7. Let me pray for us and we'll end right there. So, Father God, we come before you this morning and we say yes to all of that. That is what we long for. Would you stand with me as I continue to pray? Father God, you... You alone are worthy of our worship and of our calling. So God, um, we want to respond by saying yes to all of your invitations. You are the kind of God that brings like an invitation before your people. And then you promise to work for us. Like you, an invitation is to come to you with our need to, to like, to come with our hands open. The invitation just like David is, is not, not what we can bring to the equation. It's to have a humility that's reaching to you and that you would work for us. So God, I I pray that wherever we find ourselves this morning, as we hear this word, God, I pray that you would infuse hope into our congregation, that you would infuse hope into you. Um, you get what you want and you work for those who trust you in the midst of those places. God, as we walk in this room individually, those of us who are asking questions of you and asking, do like, do you see me? Uh, what do you want from me? How do I move toward you? God, would you meet them in that place? And would you work for them this morning? Um, hey, I want to read a passage over us. Um, <clears throat> the, this this is an invitation for, for us in the room, um, an invitation that is, the, that is a response to a God who is sovereign, who sees the beginning to the end. I, I want this passage that we walked through to like strike our imagination. This God who worked with David for him and saw to his life, he is the same God that we sing to and pray to and pursue even now. And he actually has an invitation before David, but he has an invitation for us this morning as well. Let me read this passage to you. This is from God himself to us. Isaiah 55, one says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come and buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. I think that confronts so many of our notions for how we should come to God. He does not look at the outward appearance. 
He does not look at what the rest of humanity looks at. He is not impressed with you. He doesn't need you. But he comes to you anyway because he loves us, because he has decided to set his love on us, because he longs to work for us, because he longs for us to be in right relationship. He comes and he brings this invitation to come to him. You are needy. You are thirsty. You you want to buy. You want to come, but you have nothing to bring. He says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy We buy all sorts of things to fill ourselves up and to put things on that would like make us feel a certain way or seem a certain way. We pretend, we perform. And then here's the invitation. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Just as he came to David and anointed him, just as he tested David, just as he came and gave David a promise, he actually makes a promise before us. We can actually personalize that invitation for each one of us in this room. David didn't come to God with all these like impressive things that God took notice of. God came to him and made an invitation for him to run after the things that he loved. And God met him there. Perhaps you're walking in this morning feeling broken or lost or in need of God to speak to you. You are right where God wants you to be. Say that to him. Tell him what you like. Uh, talk to him about the distance between you and him. He's not offended by doubts or questions. Actually voice those before him this morning and ask him to meet you this morning. God is saying to you, if you come to him empty-handed and hungry, willing to receive what he gives, coming with a heart that reaches for him, then he will treat you, then he will work for you and treat you as a son forever with the same mercy and faithfulness that he demonstrated to David. Listen to what Jesus says in Revelation 22, 16. This is the last verse of the Bible. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Let him who is thirsty, let him who deserves take the water of life without price. That is exactly why we end our service with communion here. You can't earn this. You can't pretend your way to the table. You can't perform your way to the table. It is without price, your price. In fact, coming to this meal costs the life of Jesus. Jesus came as uh, the son of David, fully man, fully God, living a perfect life, and he sacrificed. He paid everything that you deserve to pay. Because of your sin and separation from God, Uh, You deserve the penalty of that. And Jesus came and paid that price to welcome you into the family of God. And if that's your hope this morning, if that's your call, if that's what you reach for this morning, it would be a reach without anything in your hands. It would be a reach of saying, um, God, I need you above all other needs. Then come and receive this uh, communion meal with us uh, here in just a moment. The way we take communion is we tear a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. The stoneware is wine, the glass is juice, and we have an allergy option over here to my right. Um, 
Hey, if that's your hope this morning, we would invite you to come and take communion. If that's not your hope, if you're saying, man, I'm still wrestling with that. I'm not sure I believe that. I'm not sure I'm willing to set the things down. I'm not sure I actually trust that God works for me. Then we'd, we would invite you to just stay in your seat during communion. This is the place that like, we want our church family to be the sort of place where you can have those questions, that you can have those doubts, and over time even begin to doubt those doubts and actually process that and come to a place of trusting Jesus. If you're in that spot, we would invite you to come and receive prayer this morning. Hey, if you're asking who God is for you, then come and receive prayer. We would love to share that with you and to pray that over you. If you're, um, if you're also in this room asking other questions of faith or struggling or trying to, struggling to trust God in the place he has you in the season he has you now, come and receive prayer for that as well. But as we come and receive communion, uh, let me pray for us and then we'll come and receive. Servers can go ahead and come on up and grab the elements. So Jesus, as we come before you this morning, will you... Uh, minister to each of us? Will you speak through us? Will you um, give us a hope? Like remind us of the hope that is ours because you always, always, always follow through with your promises. So God, come and bless those who come and take communion. Would you actually, would you speak to those who are staying in their seat this morning? In your name, amen.